Thanks for taking the time to listen to this NHS Employers podcast. For all the latest NHS HR workforce information, visit www.nhsemployers.org. Hello, my name's Paul Taylor and I'm your host for this Compassion in Practice podcast. You might recognise me from our DudeCast, which is a monthly podcast from the Duo D team at NHS Employers, which we hope you have a listen to. Uh, but today I'm flying solo for a special episode to mark Compassion in Practice Week. Earlier this year, we published a new resource to support team working in the NHS called the Team Toolkit, which people seem to really like using. So I was asked if I'd record a podcast that explored if there's a link between team working and compassion in the NHS. And I thought, oh, that's easy, that's a no-brainer. But as you'll see, it was much more complicated than I expected. But I did learn a lot along the way, and I hope that you find it interesting and useful to hear some of what I've learned about compassion and team working. So this podcast is in three sections. Uh, Section one is about compassion. Section two is about teams. And section three is the sound of me scratching my head and wondering what to make of it all. So sit back, relax and come with me on this voyage of discovery into why compassion is a four-letter word. Part one, compassion. I'm going to be upfront here and say that I started this investigation thinking that I knew what compassion was. If I'm honest, I think I was beginning to confuse familiarity with understanding. Compassion is a word that I'm really familiar with, particularly since the Francis Review, and I hear people using the word compassion all the time now. It's very prevalent in our conversations, and I suppose I started to take it for granted that I knew what it meant, because I was getting into the habit of talking about compassion. But that's one of the things about habits. When they start to become habitual, they can also desensitise you, and you can just check out the work of Alain de Botton for the evidence for that. So I thought I'd shake off some of those habits and go back to the beginning and really explore what compassion means. So, like any good learner, I started with the dictionary. And the dictionary defines compassion as... Hang on, I need my serious voice for this. Compassion, a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate their suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but that just does not inspire me. Um, Sympathy and sorrow just feel weird and patronising and stricken by misfortune. Well, I just, I think we need to leave that one well alone. It just didn't sit right. So I decided to do the modern thing and ask Twitter. And I wanted to keep it simple. So I, I put out a tweet that said, what's the first word that comes to mind when you think about compassion? And before I dive into this, can I just say straight away, thank you so much to everyone who replied. In total, I had 85 responses and some of them were really moving. Uh, Some of you cheated and used more than one word, but that's fine. I don't mind a bit of rule breaking. Uh, And I ended up with a list of 33 different words. What I noticed was that the top three words were used in almost 50% of the responses And the second and third most popular words were both used the same number of times. And those were kindness and empathy. And I just, I noticed the difference that you feel between kindness and empathy and sympathy and sorrow. It's a really different approach. It feels like something has changed in the definition of compassion. And it probably won't surprise you to hear that the number one most used word was also one of the most simple, care. 
Now, I was talking to a couple of friends the other day and I, I was telling them about the work I was doing for this podcast. And one of my friends has been through treatment for breast cancer in recent years and thankfully she's now fit and well. Um, and I asked her if she had experienced a feeling of compassion during her treatment. And she brought up two things. She said that one of the most important and memorable things that happened was when her consultant met her for the first time and said, hello, my name is Sarah and I'm here for you. Now, this is before the days of Hello, My Name Is, the campaign that the brilliant Kate Granger has turned into a, a real social movement. But it reinforces the power of that connection and how it demonstrates compassion in such an important way. But then my friend said that there were also times during her treatment when she did feel a lack of compassion, that staff sometimes treated her a little bit coldly or at arm's length. And I mean, what interested me was that she didn't think it was done out of callousness. Uh, she actually thought it was a coping mechanism for the staff to be able to do their jobs properly and that in some way they had to protect themselves and maybe develop a tough shell to get through the day working with people who were unwell. And I hadn't really thought about it like that before. I think it's an interesting theory, because if the first word that comes to mind when we think about compassion is care, but in order to effectively care for people, staff maybe act in a way that looks like they don't care, well, that's not going to help anyone, staff or patients. Now, the NHS Constitution, which I have right here, right in the very first paragraph, on the very first page, says, The NHS touches our lives at times of basic human need, when care and compassion are needed most. So, if care and compassion are the things that people need most, how can we help our staff to do that? And what if there's some truth to my friend's theory that it's actually sometimes quite difficult for staff to be compassionate every second of the day, because their work is really emotionally demanding? What can we do about that? Part two, teamwork. There's a great blog on our Duod pages from the marvellous Michael West, where he says that 91% of people in the NHS say that they work in a team, although there's a query about the effectiveness of the team sometimes. And Michael says that good team working is essential for patient safety and for quality and for satisfaction. So can we agree to just take that as a given? Because I'm certainly not going to disagree with Michael West's amazing brain. But let's go back to the question that I'm trying to answer here. Does teamwork impact on compassion? Now, I've worked in the NHS for just over a decade, and before that I worked in local government. I've worked in a care home, I've worked in a prison, I've worked in a charity. And despite each of those organisations being really different, I've always worked with teams in some way, either as a team member or a team manager or working with teams to help them solve problems. So I think I know a fair bit about how teams work, but I wanted to avoid any bias. And so I decided to, again, ask some friends about their experiences of working with teams and working in teams, just to get a sense of the kind of things that came up for them. And two things came out loud and clear. The first was the experience that people have of working in a team with, and I'll use the clean version here, a bad boss. That's someone who's not a very good leader, someone who lets things get out of hand, who doesn't address problems, etc, etc. I'm not sure how many of you are nodding along to that one. Uh, the second issue that came through was that of, and again I'll keep it clean, the bad colleague. 
the person in the team who's disruptive or distracting or just downright difficult. And essentially that was pretty much it in terms of team issues, to be honest. Bad boss, bad colleague. So I wondered if there was any evidence about the impact that that has on team working that could in turn impact on compassion. So let's start with bad colleagues. Um, It reminded me of something I'd read a while ago about what was called bad apple behaviour, and that comes from the saying, one bad apple spoils the bunch. There was a study done by a guy called Will Phelps, and I'd encourage you to Google him because he's great. And uh, he set out to ask, can one person ruin a workplace? Can a bad apple really spoil the bunch? And Will set up a series of experiments where a group was given a task to achieve. And there was a prize for the winning team, so they had good motivation. But what the team didn't know is that one of them was an actor who had been told to behave in a particular way. And the actors were told to be one of three types of people. At the first one, they called the jerk. And that was someone who attacks other people and ideas and doesn't really contribute anything positive. And during the task, the the jerk would say things like, are you joking? And do you realise how you sound? And they'd intentionally embarrass people. And the second type of person uh, was called the slacker. And the slacker would just do slightly less than was needed of them to achieve the task. And they'd sometimes lean back in their chairs or they might take their phone out and start texting or they'd pull out a sandwich. Then the third person they called the pessimist and they would complain that the task was impossible or they'd say things like, well, I don't really care. And now and again, they would just put their head on the table. And the results, well, over dozens and dozens of times, the same thing happened. When the person started to display that bad apple behaviour, the team suffered. And Will Phelps was actually able to show that the teams with the bad apples performed 30 to 40% worse in the task. And the team dynamics changed as well. The teams with the bad apples started to argue and fight and they would communicate less and they would withhold information and the team members would start to take on the characteristics of the bad apple. There was one test where the whole team just ended up slumped with their heads on the table. I had a real mixture of responses when I heard about this. I found it fascinating and terrifying and quite helpful because it explained a lot about one or two of the teams I've worked in. And the thing I found most interesting was what Will Phelps discovered as one of the antidotes to bad apple behaviour, which was listening. He found that the thing that made the biggest difference was when one of the group members took on a leadership role and started to ask some questions. They started to engage the rest of the team. They really started to listen to what was going on. And in this experiment, it was found that listening was the most powerful tool against bad apple behaviour. Which I found fascinating, because it it took me to the other complaint that people had had about team working, which was the bad boss. Now, the role of the boss, the role of the team manager, is so important to a team. In fact, there's, there's something that I've been quoting for a long time, and actually it's, it's so long ago that I can't even remember where it came from, but I remember someone wise and sagely once telling me that the number one official reason that people give when they're leaving a job is because it's for reasons of salary and promotion. But once they've left the organisation, they say, actually, it was because my boss was terrible. Now, I don't have a source for that, 
but when I tried to find one, I came across a number of different things that made me think that that might be true. Uh, there's even this one uh, professional job hunting website that has a whole section devoted to how to leave your job professionally. And it says if you want to move on, you should say that there were limited opportunities for growth. And there's a list of things that you should never say. And number one is, my boss is a jerk. And I quote, you should never say that even if it was true. But I find that really worrying because if people don't talk about the problem, if people don't talk about the fact that managers are making it difficult to do something, then what can be done? And again, I'll quote Michael West here because Michael says that if we want staff to treat patients with care and compassion then managers need to treat staff with care and compassion. And his research shows that directive, brusque managers dilute the ability of staff to make good decisions. But not just that, they deplete their emotional resources and they hinder the ability to relate effectively to patients, especially patients who are most distressed. So there's kind of a challenge there for our organisations and for our HR leaders and for ourselves. If bad bosses and bad colleagues are getting in the way of our experience as staff and hindering our ability to care for patients, then what do we do about that? For me, there's another question about the role of the individual in all this, because after all, teams are made up of individuals. And uh, there's a book called Implementing Excellence in Your Healthcare Organisation that talks about compassion across teams. And it describes team compassion as coming from a mutual respect and understanding for each other's personal, social, cultural backgrounds. It says that team compassion reflects values of, and I'm probably going to get this word wrong because I'm recording it, reciprocity, open-mindedness, fairness, flexibility and listening and that team members need to be tolerant and forgiving in nature. Now that sounds fantastic, and again, more from Michael West, more evidence to support the importance of team working. He says that teams with a positive, supportive, humorous, appreciative atmosphere deliver better care. And Michael's even developed a tool that you can use to assess your own team called the Team Positivity Ratio. And there's details of that on our website if you're interested. So the evidence shows that teams, individuals, managers, they all contribute to our ability to deliver compassionate care. So maybe I've answered the question. Part three. So what? OK, I'm going to come right out with it and say, yes, I think there's absolutely a link between teamwork and compassion. From what I've learned, I think that teamwork can be both an enabler to compassion when things are going well and also a barrier to compassion when things aren't going so well. And the theory and evidence seems to back that up. The two things that seem to get in the way of good team working are those bad Apple colleagues and those bad bosses. But I want to take a second just to think of something a little bit counterintuitive and to defend those people. Let's put the, ourselves in their shoes. Um, Will Phelps showed that one of the most effective things that had an impact on bad Apple behaviour was a leader who listens. And Michael West has talked about the importance of leaders uh, not treating staff brusquely. But what about those non-listening, brusque leaders? Who's listening to them? Who's maybe treating them brusquely? Those bad bosses, they're maybe just showing a lack of compassion because people higher up in the organisation are showing a lack of compassion to them. Maybe it's just one vicious circle. 
So I'd like to suggest a couple of things here, a, a couple of different extremes. I'd like to propose that the most senior leaders in organisations take time to think about the cultures that they're creating and whether or not those cultures enable managers to manage and leaders to lead. Are those cultures helping people to be compassionate? Do the top leaders show that they care for staff so that staff can care for patients? It struck me that the words that people use to describe compassion, words like care, love, empathy, trust, warmth, they're all feelings words, emotions. And a lot of us are brought up to believe that the workplace is not a place for feelings and emotions. In fact, if you Google emotions at work, the kind of websites you get are things like how to manage your emotions at work or 14 steps to control your emotions in the workplace. There's even a great article that I found in the Financial Times called Emotions at Work in Finance that says, rational and objective, that's how business people like to see themselves. And the thing is, I think they're right. I think most of the research articles on emotion at work are about two things, stress and satisfaction. It's all kind of stiff upper lip. And maybe we've created workplaces where it's not okay to do emotion. Maybe we've tried to professionalise ourselves so much that we've taken some of the heart out of our work. We talk about professional standards, we talk about professional knowledge, professional skills, but we rarely talk about professional feelings. And maybe it's time to change that conversation. Stefan Cantori, who's a professor at Southampton University, he wrote an article for us last year called Compassion is an OD Issue. And he says, we see organisations as machines and think they should be managed like one. But for compassion to flourish, the language and attitudes of compassion need to be encouraged. And that takes me to my last point, which is about looking after ourselves, because after all, if we aren't compassionate with ourselves, we'll struggle to be compassionate with others. Kristen Neff, who runs a website called selfcompassion.org, has a, a good explanation for why sometimes that's difficult. And she says, the best reason that people aren't more self-compassionate is that they're afraid they'll become self-indulgent. They believe that self-criticism is what keeps them in line, because our culture says that being hard on yourself is the way to be. And she also says, if your compassion does not include yourself, then it's incomplete but that's a whole other podcast. The Centre for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, and yes, such a thing does exist, says that compassion brings meaning and that living a life of meaning is the greatest determinant of happiness. And I love that idea. I'm really excited by the idea that NHS organisations can help bring meaning and happiness into the lives of its staff. And by doing so, it nurtures the care that our patients need to feel when they use our services. Because ultimately, that's what it's about, isn't it? Care. I started this investigation thinking that compassion was just another word that we'll all become desensitised to in the end. But if I think about what it really means, to care, then yes, compassion is indeed a four-letter word. And in signing off, I'm going to shamelessly steal from Jerry Springer, who used to sign off all of his broadcasts with words that I think sum up the content of this whole podcast. Take care of yourself and each other. <laughs>